from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hello, and thank you for coming to listen to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. I'm Peter Kelly, I'm your host for today. Um, uh, unfortunately, Hayley has uh, an issue with uh, broadband, um, so Hayley won't be joining us today. Uh, obviously, I think it's very wet down south at the moment. Mind you, we uh, both my, myself and and, the, and my guest are up north, and we're used to the rain up here. If you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, over to you, Edward. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I'm. Dr. Edward Lynch. I'm an A&E doctor by background and also triple certified lifestyle physician. I founded a company called The Wellbeing Doctors around 18 months ago, and we're starting to introduce best practice into the workplace to improve not only mental health, but overall health outcomes for staff and also looking at how corporates can use that best practice to improve the policies and procedures that they bring in for their staff. Okay, and so I'd be really interested. In what what ta- what makes an A an A and E doctor decide? Okay, I'm going to go and start and do some work in in workplace mental health and 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 well being. And it, it it it's not like the un, not like the normal career path, is it? No, not at all. And that comes with its own difficulties within the medical field. I think. It's its own little niche where if you work in the medical field, the only thing that you do is medicine and you just bumble along in your tracks and, you know, you go on to become a registrar consultant and that is your pathway typically. So, you know, it comes with its own struggles trying to be entrepreneurial within the NHS because it just, the NHS is trying with NHS X, but it's typically not a, a very entrepreneurial setting at all. But as you started, before I was an A&E doctor, so it started when I was a medical student. Um, Prolific North actually did a piece on this, which I didn't expect. They published a piece around the history of the wellbeing doctors and me and how we got to where we are today. And it started off with one of my friends who and colleagues from school who killed himself during university. And I was at university at the time myself. And I just said, I spoke to my high school where where we met and I just said, look, I'm sure you've heard about our fellow colleague who's killed himself. Is there anything that I can add from my position that would help your current student base? And they said, yeah, okay, well, that sounds good. Let's jump, let's jump into a meeting and and see where it takes us. And then we started doing um, a couple of assemblies and it, it went down quite well with the students. So they said, okay, well, that was good. Could you, could you potentially do one for the teachers and the, and the, and the parents? So it was like, well, okay, let's have a look at that. And, you know, the, the, the content was adapted slightly and that was really the underpinnings of the journey. And um, it kind of snowballed from there and could see that there was a market need for somebody to just speak truthfully about what is happening on an individual level in terms of health and wellbeing and coming at it from a perspective which is based on the on the data rather than opinion. So this is kind of what we've done or what I've done for the past six years and 
tried a couple of times to make a, a commercial living out of that, but it hasn't gone terribly well. But, you know, that comes with its own lessons. So that's how it started. And then it's only been reinforced by the work that I do in acute trusts, whether it be, you know, I do, I've done my time on intensive care, cardiology wards, and I work most of my time between A&E and intensive care. You know, people live generally very unhealthy lives in the UK where they don't understand what's going into the bodies. They don't sleep well. They're really stressed. They don't exercise particularly well. They're overweight. They take loads and loads of medications, which arguably they could have prevented being on in the first place. You add all of those things together and you're presented with a person who has multiple comorbidities at the age of 45 and that is a big problem especially when it comes to work so from a medical standpoint i've understood how we treat it to the gold standard way pharmacologically or or surgically um but i think it's the bit before that which matters most which is how that person's actually living because that's what's put us in this position in the first place so if we can just step back a little bit and improve that person's lifestyle before we end up with those multiple comorbidities that is a much better place to be so it started off purely in the realm of mental health but then as that discovery's gone on i've i've realized that it's the multifactorial approach and the the intersectionality of lifestyle which predicts how well or unwell that person's going to be so that's where we are peter what role do you see, um, Edward, on, with the organisation? Because if the organisation and the, and the individual um, are there, and there's a responsibility, as you say, on the individual to, to, to improve lifestyle factors and improve comorbidity, um, but what is the role of the organisation in that? Um, and I, you know, if we think about the NHS and the wellbeing hubs, etc., what, what, what do you think? Because I'm, um, you know, obviously. Um, you can put somebody back into a toxic environment who can have all the right health outcome, health sort of behaviours, but actually the workplace they're in isn't 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 is not healthy. So, so what would you say the um, both the positive and the negative is of what a workplace can do to a person's you know physical and psychological health? The split between where the responsibility lies is hard to accurately get down to a precise number. So to say it's a 50-50 split or an 80-20 split, who knows? For me, the bulk of the responsibility lies on the individual. I think corporates do have a job to do, but equally, corporates are I don't like the, the the phrase corporate. And the reason for that is corporates are made up of individuals and it's the individuals that matter out of that. So it's about how do we distill a culture across those individuals? You know, corporate kind of removes a responsibility from any individual to say, this is what we're going to do about health and wellbeing. So it can get lost in that in that corporate architecture, which I'm not fond of. Now, the business as a whole, which is comprised of the, the C-suite or the HR managers, they do have a responsibility to ensure that there's there are the right policies and procedures in place 
and the culture's looked after to a point where the individuals can thrive. Now, if you look at the NHS as an example, that is arguably one of the most difficult environments to look after a staff member compared to any other corporate. And the reason being is you're already set up for a very poor baseline. You're shift working from day one. You're shift working in a dangerous environment and people who work nine to five in an office are considerably more safe immediately. You know, that corporate structure, if we want to call it that, is so much safer than an NHS setup already. They're not shift working to the, the impact on their, their sleep, their circadian rhythms, how they regulate their mood. And then that ties into what they're eating, how they'll exercise, their interpersonal relationships, spending time with family and friends. All of that within the NHS is so difficult to get right due to shift work that the baseline immediately, <laughs> you, you would assume that the baseline health of the staff in the NHS would be so much lower on that alone. It is often reflected, but whether it's due to shift work alone is, is hard to say. It's also a dangerous environment in the NHS. You know, you've got hostile patients, you're surrounded by disease, um, you can get multiple needle stick injuries. There's hazards absolutely everywhere in the NHS. So that does mean that the individuals themselves working in that environment have to take it on to a degree in order to mitigate those factors. So there are guidelines out there for shift work, how you go into shift work, how you, so when you start a night shift, what you do, what you do during the night shift, say if you're doing three or four, what you do in between those night shifts, and then how you come out of a night shift. Equally, there's guidance on late shifts, early shifts, twilight shifts. It's on, that guidance is there and the NHS do provide that, but it's on the individual to actually do it. And this is what I mean, if the individual does not do those things due to variety of factors, let's say they've got kids at home or uh, they want to go to the gym at a certain time or, you know, life and routine often gets in the way or current routine gets in the way of what, what they sh could do better. It's on the individual to actually do that. And the corporate can only do so much to introduce those policies and procedures. So, it's a really difficult balance, Peter, but I think there's responsibility within both parties. Fundamentally, however, the individual needs to take on their burden and, and, and look after themselves in a way which is appropriate to their situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, it, we... When it, even when we're assessing corporate stress, we look at what's the role of the individual in that, in, you know, in individual uh, elements that are there. The interesting thing, uh, Edward, is if you look across um, the country, the NHS has, is the biggest employer. It also has the highest rates of people reporting work-related stress as based on that, that, that work makes them ill. Um, and so even even with all the obvious hazards that are there um, and, um, you know, the, the fact that there are well-being support in, in, in most um, most trusts, um, NHS staff still report that they, that they, they feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the by some of the systems and processes. Yes. So um, so even 
we have this conversation, even though you have these, we want you to do have lifestyle factors that make sure you come in healthy. It might be that actually having, as we've said, having those, we could potentially, um, we, you still have these people that uh, that find that the overload of work, I mean, obviously, as an A&E doctor on a Saturday night and a Friday night, it's chaos in some respects, isn't it? Um, that add, that's a, that's an organisational pressure. So I, I, I guess, um, and, and you want your people to be as strong as they, they can be, yeah. but they are ultimately going to be influenced by, um, by a, a wave of pressure that comes in. Yeah, I, I do think though, Peter, you know, what can the NHS do? A&E is a stressful environment, if we're yeah. taking A&E as an example. And how does the NHS make that less stressful? You know, yeah. it's it's like, it's almost akin to a war zone. Obviously, we're not getting shot at. But, you know, it's how do you make a war zone less stressful? Hmm. You know, being in the war zone for the minimal amount of time as possible, yes, that helps. So it, what we have to remember is people here have a choice. You know, they don't have to work in this environment if they don't want to. They can work yeah. somewhere else. Personally, I, I thrive off it. I like the adrenaline-fueled working circumstances. But if people are getting stressed out by it, you know, there's plenty of other opportunities. The, you know, the nurses within A&E are... Again, arguably some of the most highly skilled nurses there because they have to do everything. They have to do almost all of the procedures, bloods. They have to deal with multiple, multiple issues. It's not just psych. It might be urology issues. It might be gastro issues. They have to have a baseline knowledge across all of it. So they're really, really, really sought after staff and they can pretty much work wherever they want, these people. So I think the NHS can't do anything about that situation because it's it is akin to a war zone you apart from staffing it with unbelievable levels of people you know that that stress is always always going to be there and when you start thinking about again that intersectionality of how we run a department unfortunately finances do become a, a part of that and it's just unreasonable to assume that we could have an unlimited number of staff Yes, now, yeah, of course, what what we need to do is reduce the amount of people coming in through the doors because pe the population is so sick due to their lifestyles that we have a, a just an, a huge wave of people coming through the doors, and it's not just Friday and Saturday nights, Peter. It's you know we're in the we're in the middle of summer here, and at twelve o'clock on a Sunday midday, we had one hundred and seventy people waiting to be seen. And there was 10 doctors on. And you're like, mm. <laughs> that's where that's where the stress comes in. But you, you know, you have to just you have to just plod on with your work. You can't you can't run around flapping, thinking, oh my god, there's all these people to see. You know, you just have to accept there's only so much work that you can do and, and the weights will go up, unfortunately. But I think yeah. the things that the NHS can do is they can put in fairer rotors. They can they can put in little extra hours either side of night shifts. They can pay you fairly. You know there are things that they can do, but they can't necessarily, as an individual trust. And you know they're the people who employ you. They, how are they going to change 
how many people come in through the front door because that dictates your stress. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, it's because you have that open door sort of that, that sort of approach. Um, one of the things that you know, you look at when you look at what you're doing through the wellbeing doctors, you're, mo- you're very evidence based, yeah. So your approach to tackling wellbeing and workplace mental health is around the evidence. Where do where do you think the there is good evidence, and where do you think there is the need for more evidence when it comes to workplace mental health and wellbeing? That's a great question, isn't it? It is. It is, Peter. I, I think generally in the UK, there's almost zero evidence base in what we do. Mm. I, th- I look at what businesses offer, what employee well-being businesses offer corporates, and it is unbelievably poor, the offering. And mm. the things that upset me is that the guidelines have been published and set based on 50 years worth of research and it's not integrated. And I know why it's difficult, but if we're not doing that, then who decides what we're measuring? Mm. You, you know, these, these, these workplace wellbeing companies come in and I always sit there and think, what does good look like to them? They have no idea what good looks like. And then you think, if you don't know what you're measuring and you don't know what good is, if you're putting in a, an intervention and it creates an output, how reliably are you going to be able to measure that? Because you don't know what you're measuring and you don't know what good looks like. <laughs> and then by what standards are these people experts? Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I think the whole thing is just, unbelievably dangerous and it's people's health fundamentally that we're dealing with so for me it has to be evidence-based it's the only way for us as a community of of lifestyle practitioners or well-being interventionists it's the only way for us to actually look after people safely because you know i have contributed to the evidence base in a very minimal way but the research has been done over 40, 50 years and, and the, the data is in. You know, we understand to a reasonable degree how to look after a person and it will continue to get better. Of course it will. But, you know, now the evidence base that we currently have access to isn't being used by 99% of the workplace wellbeing offerings. It just baffles me. Yeah, yeah. 
But many of those have actually just grown up over a period of time. Um, you know, during certainly over the last ten years, we've seen a, a plethora of um, you know uh, these organisations coming. Some have got evidence, but a large proportion, as you said, um, don't have evidence based. Um, and it's um, you, you you know you'd be familiar uh, uh, with, with with Cochrane reviews in terms of looking for the um, you know evidence of, of, of an impact in performance and effect. Uh, so uh, I've tried to encourage where I can organizations to assess the impact of what they do and, 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 and to do that right from the out. So just to sign in evidence base right from, from the outset. And you're going to do an initiative to be proactive on mental health and well-being, then you need to be designing in the, the 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 assessment of how 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 well it did or what you know did it have impact and you need to determine what impact is etc etc so um you know in, in, in what is fascinating well, you, as you'll know the reason Cochrane came about was a heart procedure was undertaken for about 15 years that was thought to be completely effective um, and actually when they did a systematic review, of that procedure, they found more people were actually dying, so, because so the so uh, the the initial reason why the Cochrane reviews happened was well, what else is happening that we assume is having an impact but might not be having an impact? So um, yeah, it's it's it, it, that's the fascinating fascinating bit of it for me. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I like I you need evidence. I I I, I feel. Evidence is fundamental to making those decisions. Um, it's interesting, like, because when you when you look at psychological health and safety, where we're talking about how people um, are, are essentially protected at work from things that might potentially cause them uh, cause them a problem, we're looking at it from an holistic approach. So it does include physical, psychological, and and mental. Um, mental sort of health where how do you find that when you present when you go to those external to the nhs to an organization um how do you present what you're doing which is an holistic approach in a way that gets them engaged and get and gives them impact i know you because i know you've, you've developed heavily on the tech side haven't you mm-hmm. you put some tech resources in there so so are you asking how do we create buy-in from the organizations? Yes. Is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, again, it's n- no singular factor. It's the entire thing. They need to understand how it impacts them as a business. Um, I, it's difficult. To, you, you know, I, I'm always supportive, uh, very supportive of the individuals. And for me, that is the single most important aspect of all of this just as a disclaimer and to make that clear. On a business level, however, they do want to know the financial impact, the productivity impact, how many days off sick there are, and to understand that to a reasonable enough level that they can plan and understand if they need additional resource here or there. For example, if you could accurately predict when somebody's gonna go off sick because of the current mental health status of that individual that allows that business to plan and resource appropriately around that. Um, now in an ideal world, obviously you just look after the individuals better. Um, 
or you enable them to look after themselves better. That's probably a better way to phrase it. It is, it is difficult to create the buy-in from a corporate because they're most bothered about, unfortunately, box ticking and finances. So box ticking might be sustainable development goals, which are set by uh, the UN, or you see a lot of companies now moving towards B corporations, so benefit corporations. You know, there's a lot of procedures and policies that they need, they need to set up as a company in order to hit those goals. So, you, you know, for them, they want to certainly look good and look attractive to new talent. And they also want to understand what the financial impact is on their business and be able to plan appropriately. So having those discussions with corporates and understanding how they're set up, where the teams are based, what they think the current sickness absence is, presenteeism rates, what the cost is, and then looking at a, a value equation as to how we can help them. That's often how we create buy-in. But, you know, I go back to what I said first, which is the individual, the individuals within their business, they are our priority. You know, we have to look after them fundamentally. Yeah, and the organisation does have a responsibility, as, you know, to to facilitate that possibility that they can stay, they can sort of stay healthy. Well, not sort of stay healthy, but um, so yeah, I guess it. I'd I'd want I'd be interested to see where do you, do you see the future of mental health in workplace going? Okay, given that there is a rise in the general health and well-being movement, you know, you can you can't not switch on your TV without somebody talking or Instagram or or um, any other any you know any other TikTok where yeah. we got things on well being and health and that. Um, in particular the individual based approach as opposed to organizations. So what I'm trying to say is and I will always come back to organizations as well as the individual. Um, I would like to see a rise in organizational stuff equally with this, the significant rise that we've seen in, in with individuals. Um, but where do you see it going in the future of mental health in the workplace? It's certainly about self-empowerment and control on an individual level. They need to be able to understand their health quickly and do something about it now, which is what we offer as the wellbeing doctors. Mm -hmm. I think it will be digital You digital tools will be used but not not used in a social media type fashion because what we've seen the evidence base within social media what that highlights is that it actually isolates people more than it connects people it increases the amount of stress and depressive feelings that people have so, you know, you mentioned TikTok and Instagram. I, th I think the markets will slowly shift away. For, for in, the, in the slightly older generation, people are already, it's already happening. People are moving away from using social media as much because they recognize the detrimental impact it has on their health. But I think that the whole market is moving towards self-enabling digital tools that provide visibility of what your current health status is in order that you can then improve it and it's based on best practice so where is my health at right now 
these are the recommendations that are set for me as a 35 year old female whose stress level is currently let's say 70 percent my blood pressure is x my blood results are y i have a family history of this my underlying conditions are these and i'm on these medications therefore these are the recommendations for me as an individual and that's the thing it's not about grouping people into whatever groups you decide to put people into it's not about that the the most important thing is we treat people as individuals because as i've just highlighted there that that example of a 35 year old female with x y and z that is a hyper specific situation and that 35 year old female can't be grouped with the other 35 year old females because they will be so so different when you factor in the all of the features of those people you know so it comes down to that individual self-empowerment and control giving that that actual human being control over their health and well-being rather than trying to do it on a mass level that's where it's heading to yeah and 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 I guess that, you know, that is how it will be across the NHS. I mean, as, as we sort of, you know, continue can continue to struggle in, in that. Um, so what we normally do is we, um, is we leave our listeners with, with one last final thought, uh, something that you feel is important for them to, 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 to know, specifically around mental health and that. So, you know, what would be if you had the you know this opportunity? What would be the one final thing that you would say to, to the listeners that they need to do to sustain and improve their mental health? And what does the, you know? And and where do you and what do you see as the that the organisation can do as well? Good luck. Yeah. Okay. Again, it depends. I I can't possibly give generic advice to mm. to people because. As we've just discussed, it's the the intersectionality of all problems that coming together that makes that individual unique. So, you know, the advice would always be to sit down and reflect on where you're at right now. And the things to think about are, am I happy with my career? Am I happy with my family? Am I happy with my current friendships? Am I potentially doing too much socializing, not enough socializing? Do I feel isolated? Am I exercising enough? What's my sleep like? Am I eating good enough foods? Is it processed? There's loads and loads and loads of things that they, we get them to sit down and think about. So they're you know, probably 10 factors that you can think about the remote. That's not exhaustive whatsoever. But my advice would be to sit down and reflect where you are now and think, what things am I doing wrong that aren't serving me? And ask yourself that question honestly. It might take a while to create an answer. It might You might have five or, five or six things straight away, but write them down. Think about it and write them down and then put plans in place to fix it. That's what we should all be doing all of the time. And I can't possibly say, you know, you, you must do this. You, can't, you must eat well, for example. Obviously, that's fine. That's great. But what if I'm having a highly nutritious, zero processed diet? It's, you know, it's like that advice doesn't apply to me. So reflect on where you're at now. Think about all the things which are potentially impacting your, your health and well-being, career or otherwise. What is not serving me? And then put plans in place to fix them.
Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's sort of important. And one thing we didn't really cover was um, there, there, uh, there. You offer a range of services, don't you, in terms of um, of the lifestyle. So it 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 is across the spectrum um, of, yeah. of of trying to support people, which is really really important. Well, thank you very much for that. And what we we normally do now is we just remind our listeners that um, they can listen to this podcast on all of their various platforms that they have, including YouTube. And we hope that uh, everyone has a, a, a good time listening to this. Look forward to uh, seeing and hearing from people uh, through the LinkedIn. And we look Thank forward you. look forward to the next chat. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.